brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Back in the saddle and ready to ride from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and it seems to me that anyone who takes an honest assessment of the state of the world right now can clearly see we're not in a good place. Depression rates are only getting higher, the advice and treatment from the medical establishment is only getting worse, and we're desperate for the authenticity the digital age is lacking. Our energy and attention has been captured by phone notifications, corporate programming, and thankless jobs for which we have no passion. It's hard to imagine the solutions could start with gardening, walking in the woods, or developing a meditation routine, but the things that don't serve us are so severely intertwined in our lives that some proverbial Stockholm Syndrome has us in such a deep denial, few people truly even test the theory. But we see examples like today's returning guest, Phoenix Aurelius, who show us the value in fully engaging with natural systems, the esoteric aspects of life, and that perennial philosophy baked into the world beyond the bright flashing lights of another psychologically manipulative marketing machine and the chaos of our signal-soaked cities. You might recall from his last round on THC that Phoenix is a self-taught spagyricist who has been practicing and teaching the alchemical arts and sciences since 2005, and as a student of Paracelsus's work, he's been reconstructing spagyric theory, philosophy, practice, and pharmacopoeia for the 21st century at the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, which you can find at phoenixaurelius.org, along with his carefully crafted spagyric teachers. It's an honor and a pleasure to have him back, our liaison to the deeper layers of reality, reviver of the lost arts, and educator of the alchemical ways. Phoenix, my man, welcome back to the higher side. Hey, thanks so much, Greg. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yes, thanks for doing it again so soon. I really had a blast last time, but I was left with maybe even more questions than we started with. <laughs> I did my job then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It just shows how far the average person is from these things, but it's nice that we can start a little bit further down the line this time, assuming some of the fundamentals are still rattling around in people's heads out there. When it comes to your own experiences, though, this was something that I cut last time that might be a good way to get us off the ground, but it is a quote from your site where you write, in 2014, I was hired by Quarai Anti-Amazonian Herbals to travel on site to 
Terrapoto, Peru, and offer the founders and their staff a 40-day spagyric apprenticeship. During my time there, I was able to develop strong relationships with Amazonian cosmology. I existentially connected with the concept of bioregional animism, locations having conscious expressions of intelligence that act by way of the vegetation, mineral, and animal expressions that lives thereupon. In the Amazon, the magic of things is much thicker than the tamed places we have come to know in the United States. <laughs> well, don't I know it? <laughs> and, you know, we've talked here about animism before, but can you talk to us about the experience of being in the Amazon and how you saw the intelligence of the natural system or consciousness express itself in ways that might sound strange to someone who has spent most of their life in American cities? Man, yeah, this is a really fun topic. I'm glad that we're starting out with this, man. So 2014, I got invited down by Aubrey Bomdad and Dionisio Santos, who run the Corriente Amazonian Herbals business. And then they also run the Yakumama Sanctuary of Integral Shamanism. And so Dionysios has been down there for the better part of, you know, like 30 years or something teaching shamanism. And he's a Westerner himself, actually. So he was born in Spain and then moved to France as a child and had a very successful corporate job. He ended up moving to Peru in order to work with the Shipibo shamans and the shamans of the upper Amazonian basin. So he's been down there for a very, very, very long time. And he's trilingual. He speaks English, French, Spanish. So they get people from all over the world actually going down there. And God, I forget how many years ago it is, but Aubrey was very insistent at a certain point that they get together and start working together and so on and so forth. And she ultimately ended up falling in love with Dionisio, which would be very difficult not to do, to be perfectly honest. He's just he's a fantastically charming individual. So together they have combined all of their efforts and they have a completely beautiful eco sanctuary down there. So when I went down there, I didn't just go down blind and I wasn't just listening to, you know, like the quote unquote monetary shamans that, you know, will do a ceremony for just about any gringo with money. These people really live and walk their talk. So Aubrey is a Ayurvedic practitioner. Her whole goal is to take all of the items of the Amazon and make, you know, essential oils and hydrosols and room sprays and tinctures and uh, eventually spagyrics too. That was my whole role of going down there. And to be able to classify those medicines within the context of Ayurveda, because up until her, there's really been nobody doing that. So they have this very, very unique perspective and way of looking at things and interacting with the environment. And like I said, because Dionysio has been down there for 30 years, he studied with all of the different types of tribes that you can in the upper Amazonian basin, everywhere from Iquitos all the way into Sacred Valley. And of course, where they live in Tarapoto, they have the Lamistas. The Lamistas are a very interesting indigenous tribe in the upper Amazonian basin. And where Tarapoto is, is actually in coca growing region. So this is where the coca for the entire Incan empire, realistically, at least from the Peruvian aspects of Incan empire, would have been grown and transported up into the sacred valley for so many of the ceremonies that have been going on there for thousands of years. So very, very, very interesting thing. The Lamistas are very interesting as well because they don't have a whole lot of 
magical practice per se, but they do have a practice of what's called vegetalista or vegetalismo, which would be like vegetable healing, a form of kind of magic using the plants is what we would refer to it as kind of in English. So they have like mapacheros, which takes mapacho, sacred tobacco, sacred Amazonian tobacco, and they'll perform all these healings and things, but they don't have any windows in their houses because they think that negative spirits can enter in through the windows. And, you know, just a very, very, you don't point at rainbows because the rainbow will bite you and then you'll get sick. You never go outside in the rain. You never stand out in the wind, especially in the evenings. You always have to go indoors in the evenings. Otherwise, the beings out there make you sick. And they have a very, very steep cosmology, whether you're La Mista or just, it's interesting because they kind of discriminate against their own indigenous tribes. So there are Peruvians and then there are indigenous. And the Peruvians, like those who live in Tarapoto, for instance, they still abide by a lot of the old indigenous ways and beliefs and cosmology, but there's a very clear, distinct difference in their own opinion between the ways of life and so many other things. So the Peruvians themselves in Tarapoto are still very much so alive with this cosmology. They have this concept of a being known as Chuyachaki. And Chuyachaki became one of my favorite fascinations, actually, of the entire Amazonian cosmology, because he's kind of like the Amazonian equivalent of Pan, you know, the Greek god Pan, the satyr. And so they oftentimes will say that he has, you know, the skin of a snake, more or less the body of a human, but his legs are oftentimes like a hooved animals. So sometimes deer, sometimes goats, and then he has horns and just a very, very interesting cosmology, but he's kind of the keeper of the forest. And when we went on a hike to, I think it's called the Wakamayo waterfall, we were doing this hike and our tour guide was telling us that his brother actually went into the forest as a kid and he didn't take any mapacho with him which is you know this sacred tobacco from the amazon didn't take any mapacho with him and so anytime you encounter chuyachaki you always have to be able to make some sort of offering and tobacco is basically the offering that he really likes and he didn't have it and he came back and his arms were ripped off both of his arms and he was running back to his village and passed out just a short way in front of the village and ended up living because they were able to cauterize it with really hot wound, but now he has no arms. And according to him and the local villagers, that's like a pretty regular common occurrence. If you're in the forest doing things that you ought not be doing, like harvesting things without permission, you might run into Chuyachaki. And so That was just a very interesting glimpse into the magic that's kind of still alive. But you go even deeper and you start to see that, you know, they have so many different types of what we would refer to in the West as mythical beasts that are still alive and still very believed in and very much so interacted with the local individuals. And it just there's a sense of magic and there's a sense of mysticism that is alive there, even in the minds of the common people, even in the Christian population, you know, that you just don't see that so much here in in the United States. Although we do have it, we have plenty of places like in Yosemite National Park and so many other places, you know, it's like missing 411 actually starts to tap into maybe some of these different interdimensional entities. So we do have them here. It's just not 
as alive. It's just still not as pronounced as what it was in the Amazon. And so being able to learn and interact with that magic and being able to explore that and go to different areas too of the entire Amazonia region was just absolutely spectacular. It was a life enriching experience. And in fact, you know, we tried to hold alchemy in the Amazon retreats down there because, you know, they have an entire retreat house to do it, but we just couldn't find enough interest actually for people to want to go down to the Amazon study for 10 to 14 days with alchemy in an immersive environment. And, you know, a lot of that for Western schedules is just, it's hard to be away for seven to 14 days, but especially out of country, you know, if you have kids or a job or any of these other things, but you know, anybody who's interested in doing that, go ahead and let us know. We'll put your name on the roster and I'd be more than happy to lead a trip once Peru opens its borders again. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, that's where I was supposed to be this summer. But of course, a lot of people's plans got disrupted. And it is kind of crazy because those are interesting stories. And it seems like the most universal aspect of various indigenous cultures seems to be that spirits and entities are very real. And you have to adjust your life accordingly. So much so that it's weird to me that we can strip out the spirits from our culture and nobody seems to be missing limbs without an explanation. But of course, bears and mountain lions are also dangerous, but we've run them out for the most part too. So maybe it's something similar. Maybe our modern cities and industrialized culture kind of pushes spirits to the borders in the same way that we push dangerous animals out. Well, you know, like I was saying, actually, there are multiple cases, especially in various national forests, Yosemite being one of them, where you do find guts, entrails, other things of missing people, but you don't find anything else. Sometimes they just go missing altogether. Like there's some very interesting information. A woman named Michelle DeVries, she's writing a master's thesis on this for her degree in metaphysics. But, you know, realistically, there have been people out there, investigators like David Polyides, mm -hmm. who have been discussing things like this actually for a long time. And, you know, of course, there are, you know, wide accounts of what we would refer to as Bigfoot out here in Utah. We definitely have skinwalkers and, you know, other types of things like that that were typically used by brujeria or a type of magic. And, you know, the Navajo and the Paiute definitely have some longstanding resentment against each other that were pitted by the Mormons where they were casting spells on and cursing each other's land. And if you go into that land, especially here in the Uintas, south face of the Uintas near Paiute territory, it is definitely, you're going to run into some very unexplainable experiences, disappearances, different types of things like that as well. So we do have it. It's just definitely not as pronounced. And of course, you know, the Roman Catholic Church and then following after that in its wake, all of the other different denominations of Christianity have really tried to drive out that concept of spirits from our modern culture today. And I think that that's folly. It doesn't matter whether you go to, you know, places like Ireland or Iceland or whatever else, Norway, they all have traditions where the little people or where the elves or where the gnomes, where they dwell and how they interact. And even, you know, like in Norway and Sweden and stuff, if you were to take a pot of boiling water and pour it on the ground, you first have to make a call out 
to the elves or to the little people and let them know that you're going to do it because they take it very offensively if you spill hot water on them accidentally by not even knowing that they're there. So you give them fair warning before you place hot water on the ground. So that type of magic and that type of awareness is definitely alive in the West, just perhaps not as pronounced. Yes, fair points. I mean, the missing 411 stuff is really fascinating and it does often happen in open spaces or woods or national parks. So it's like, think back to a time when all of America was open spaces, woods and national park like landscapes. And I'm sure this stuff was just everywhere. And Last time we talked about spagyrics and Alchemy 101 and the basic idea that everything is made up of sulfur or the soul, mercury, which is the spirit, and salt, which is the body. And what I loved about that, what makes it seem like such a sound philosophy is just how universally applicable it is. Working these aspects in the right way and in the right order is as useful for making potent tinctures as it is building a better you. Well, to say that everything is also divided into male and female, ones and zeros, might seem a bit more obvious, but this is also an aspect of that perennial philosophy that goes a lot deeper than we might realize, right? Yeah, absolutely. For instance, in the alchemical cosmology, everything originates from what would be known as the universal monad, okay, the universal source of creation. And the universal source of creation or that monad really in order to be able to create it needs to know two functions it needs to know the off function and it needs to know the on function the off function would be what we would perceive as is like the feminine polarity which is passive okay and then the active aspect of that polarity would be what we would conceive to be as the masculine And these in alchemy are known as celestial salt and celestial niter, respectively, the passive being celestial salt and celestial niter being the active. And from these things, that really is the binary coding, if you want to look at it, into the universe. And, you know, what we look at is that everything is one from its spiritual source. And so in the spiritual dimension, all there is, realistically, is unity. And that's where the monad comes in. As soon as you start to precipitate down from spirituality, though, the next dimension that we would be referring to would be the causal dimension. And in this, this is where cause and effect really happens. So this is also where sacred geometry really comes into play and where it's very important because zeros are like angles and ones are very much so just like a straight line or a segment. And so every time that you hit a zero, it's like creating an angle. Every time you hit a one, it's a segment connecting that angle to the next segment or next angle that you're going to get. And there are only so many different forms that you can have by creating zeros and ones before you start building the same types of forms just on top of more elaborate forms. So, you know, Plato and Hippocrates and so many others. Aristotle. In fact, we refer to these oftentimes as Aristotelian thought, but Pythagoras was actually the one who drove geometry into Greek cosmology and started talking about what we now call the Platonic solids. So you have a sphere, which is perfectly feminine. That's nothing but zeros. And then, you know, you would have your tetrahedron, which corresponds to the element of fire. And when you create the causal shape of the tetrahedron using the amount of segments and the amount of angles that there are 
that is the most active and dynamic of all of those shapes. And it's inverse when you take an inverse shape of it, and this goes into Archimedean geometry, is another tetrahedron. So it doesn't transform into something else like the rest of the elements do. But if you take water, which is, for instance, the icosahedron, and you inverse all of the positions of it through Archimedean geometries, you'll begin to notice that through just a number of processes, typically seven processes, you're able to arrive from one geometry to the next. So if you start with an icosahedron, you follow all of the Archimedean steps, the seven Archimedean steps, then what you end up with on the other end is a pentagonal dodecahedron, which corresponds to spirit. And of course, if you do this with a cube and you follow the Archimedean geometries, you end up with an octahedron at the end of those seven processes and vice versa. So the dodecahedron can easily be turned into an icosahedron and a cube can easily be turned into an octahedron vice versa. So those really are the way. So you have your fire, air, water, earth, and spirit concepts all embodied inside of geometry. And what makes something a perfect platonic solid is if all of the angles are completely equal in that geometric form, and if all of the lengths of the segments are exactly the same as well, and if they all fit inside of a sphere so that all of the angles are touching the edges of the sphere perfectly, that's really the criteria that are necessary in order to make a platonic solid. And so these platonic solids, at least within our framework of creation, appear to be kind of like the causal building blocks. And over time, like for instance, if I take a cube and I start adding tetrahedrons onto each of the faces, each of the six faces, now we have a more elaborate geometry. And on each of those faces of the tetrahedrons that are on site, on the cube, if we add some octahedrons onto those triangular faces, then we start to get even a more complex geometry and so on and so forth. And this is kind of the way from the causal perspective, from the causal level, how creation begins to stack upon itself and create new possibilities of what is available in terms of conscious exploration for anything that exists within the causal plane. And like I kind of talked about, from the causal plane, descends into the astral plane. And the astral plane really is corresponding to the base platonic geometries. And this deals with your elements, you know, four elements plus the quintessence of spirit or icosahedron, which is a perfect balance of all four of the Aristotelian elements. So no one element takes predominance. And it's within that framework that the astral really is able to take shape and draw its power from the causal and then from there, the astral precipitates into etheric energy, which we would primarily refer to as electromagnetism, but the flow of anything, actually, it doesn't just have to be flow of electromagnetism, flow of any energy. And then from there, that informs physical matter, how to precipitate. So, you know, realistically, what we're looking at in terms of celestial salt and celestial nitre are the basic building blocks to create things within the causal plane. And that's where the concept of masculine and feminine originally starts. But then when you precipitate into the astral plane, fire would be the active of the active elements, whereas air or wind would be the passive of the active elements uh, that correspond to celestial nitre. 
and celestial salt would have the active of the passive being water and the passive of the passive being earth. And so you see that there is yin within yang and yang within yin, just like they talk about in Chinese cosmology, also making its way into Western cosmology just through these concepts of celestial salt and celestial nitre. And of course, like we've talked about on the etheric plane, everything is composed of a soul, spirit, and body, or sulfur, mercury, and salt. And what that looks like really is that the combination of fire and wind is what creates sulfur. And the combination of wind and water is what creates mercury, which is androgynous or actually hermaphroditic. So fire would be very masculine. Soul would be very masculine. The hermaphroditic archetype would be mercury. And then, of course, you have the feminine archetype being salt, which is a combination of water and earth. And so you have those four elements essentially creating three very distinct and very unique genders by the time you get to the etheric body. And those are also the three genders that you actually see appearing in nature all over, which is masculine, feminine, or hermaphrodite. Hmm. And, you know, this being somewhat of a conspiracy show, and this is thorny territory, but there are people out there whose research seems to be focused on the fact that they're trying to increase the uh, androgynous gender and it's something, it's not like my biggest priority in terms of like the problems we're dealing with here. But it is interesting to think about the esoteric agendas of the elite and having the context of the different realms and dimensions and the structures of reality that the average guy doesn't really have. It does seem like they're doing some kind of meddling there. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, actually, Beth Martins asked me about this when I went on her King Hero podcast. And, you know, what I can say is that anytime that you're working with various chemicals that are able to alter the endocrine system response of an individual or starting to eat foods that also alter endocrine response and make those foods popularized by, you know, fast food or other things like that, it doesn't have to be much of an agenda because people will always do what is easiest and most available to them. So whether there is an agenda or whether they're doing it through their own ignorance is really difficult to say. But what I can say is that most men are very testosterone deficient these days. We have a whole lot of what I would refer to as girly boys uh, to draw a term from Arnold Schwarzenegger. And we also have a whole lot of women too that are very much so estrogen dominant and we also have some estrogen deficiencies we have so many different types of things and you know of course the chemicals of atrazine that are really present anywhere where you're downstream from commercial logging operations or even california washington and oregon are the highest in the united states for their atrazine use and it follows agriculture and forestry, basically. And so that's why you see those three states having the highest levels of them. Dr. Tyrone Hayes has actually shown very clinically that you can take with a very small amount of atrazine applied to frogs or most amphibians, but he's working specifically with frogs. You can take a biologically male frog, apply a small amount of atrazine to either food, water, or skin exposure, and with enough prolonged exposure, which isn't really that long, 
what ends up happening is that biologically male frog becomes a biologically female frog that is actually then capable of being impregnated and laying its own eggs by another male frog. And so atrazine, literally over three times the amount that's necessary in order to do that to a biological specimen of a frog or other amphibians, is legally allowed in the water supply. And so when you take a look at the West Coast and you take a look at its transsexual orientation in the modern day and things like that, I think that there's definitely some causation happening by that. It's not just that people feel free to express who they really are, quote unquote. It's that they wouldn't even know who they really are in certain cases because they are so impacted by chemical influences. And atrazine is really just one of those. I've been collecting peer-reviewed scientific documentation on a wide number of different endocrinological disruptors. And anything that plays around with sex hormones or androgen in general is going to create gender confusion, gender dysmorphia somewhere along the line. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know that's a, a topic in this alternative community that's talked about, I think, maybe too much. But I was curious what you thought about it, because with the context of these other realms and the importance of the underlying structure, it seems like in many different ways, the argument is that the elite's plan is to disrupt that order, disrupt that structure, and maybe in a Tower of Babel kind of way of making a, a bridge or tower to the realms in which are not physical, that we're really not supposed to be meddling with, and somewhat playing God. And it's all kind of beyond me because I don't have a lot of sense of those extra realms. It's all kind of an intellectual exercise for me. But it does seem like the elite are motivated by spiritual things because otherwise, why wouldn't they just retire? If they were truly atheists who thought this is all we get, it would be like, well, Bill Gates would be uh, on Little St. James and he wouldn't. you never hear from him again. He wouldn't address any crowds. He's got billions of dollars in the bank. So it does seem like there's some weird motivations that just aren't ever going to make their way into uh, the mainstream conversation. Well, let's talk about that, actually, because I'm far from understanding where other people are at, especially what we would refer to as like the elites or people who are making large planetary decisions. So, you know, I'm far from the finish line in understanding that. But what I can say is this, is that everybody has a volition of the soul and everybody has their own opinions of what is good and what is necessary and so on and so forth. I tend to think and feel that once you really, truly understand esoteric principles in general, you tend to be a little bit more cautious about what you're doing and try to make only an effect on your own life or the lives of those around you, not necessarily meddling in planetary affairs, because when you do that, that generates a fair bit of karma. You're making decisions that are going to impact lots and lots of individuals. And the more that you understand about esotericism, either from Tibetan Buddhist path or, you know, within the Western esoteric tradition, which is largely derived from Hermeticism, those are things that you want to try to minimize so that you can walk into your next incarnation with as much awareness as possible of your former intelligence and former incarnation. So it seems to be something that's done in vast ignorance. And, you know, there is a large conspiracy out there that the global elite are using alchemy and they're using magic very consciously. And I would say, no, they're about like Aleister Crowley. 
they know enough to be exceptionally dangerous and they're driven largely by their own egos. They haven't done a lot of spiritual work, which is to say discipline, but they have done a lot of psychological work. And so they work in the realms of psychological manipulation. And, you know, like I've done in a couple of IDF analyses with Sam Tripoli and with Lindsay Sharman from Rogue Ways and, you know, Sam Tripoli of Tinfoil Hat, what we have seen is that some of the beings that are being worked with by these individuals like Bill Gates, for instance, it may be entirely conscious or it may be entirely unconscious how they're doing it. But when you're making a pact with a certain entity, you know, when you're working with any sort of egregore, you might serve the egregore, but who does the egregore serve? And this is where, you know, reading Mark Stavish's book on egregores, I think is absolutely critical reading for every person in the modern age, because they need to understand that it's our egregores. It's the thoughts that we've created that we've given power to through our belief systems largely that have ended up shaping our destiny here as mankind. And realistically, it doesn't matter whether Bill Gates or any of these other people are having an agenda. What matters is that if you are tied into the thought structures of the egregores, which is to say anything that you have ever seen that has a symbol or an image that has power inside of your mind, as an entity. So like, for instance, you see the McDonald's arches, that is an egregore because it stands for something. It's just itself an image, but it stands for something. When we are giving and empowering those egregores with our money, with our attention, so on and so forth, they really have a tendency to run away and develop an entity or volition all of their own. And I think that that's really what people need to understand is that all of us have probably heard, as you think, so it becomes, or mind over matter would be another way of talking about those things. Until people are responsible enough to be able to control their thoughts and to be able to keep their thoughts focused very particularly on the things that they absolutely want to create and disentangle themselves from sticky entities like egregores by completely eliminating beliefs, because beliefs are your enemy. Anybody who offers you a belief is your enemy. So being able to eliminate beliefs, being able to use thoughts and not give our power to thoughts, but be able to allow thoughts to actually serve us, which is opposite than an egregore. In an egregore, you give your belief or your thought power, your astral power to that entity, and then that entity ends up taking on a volition of its own. And so you serve the egregore, but who does the egregore actually serve? What other entities, interdimensional beings, are actually working? with controlling that egregore behind the scene. And so it really comes down to a state of personal power in the end where people need to reclaim their potency, their certainty, their confidence in their own thoughts and not really take things very personally, but just, you know, it's okay to just have a thought about something that can change based on further evidence. Buying into a belief immediately puts things into the hands of the egregore and the egregore will run away with things. And so every commercial entity, that's even the legal term for it, it has developed its own egregore. And I think that that's really important for people to understand. They need to begin to disentangle from those things and tap back into what is actually real and tangible here in the physical world and disengage from giving their power to things in the astral dimension. Hmm. <laughs> Good advice. And let me ask you a little more about thoughts in the mental realm, because last time we talked about the alchemy of the self, that 
we start with calcination and burning away our excuses for things, and then dissolution where the waters of our emotion break down through salty tears, and then we separate and filter and distill our dreams even further. Obviously, those are the cliff notes, but it was all quite eye-opening. But let me ask you about aspects of the mind and thinking, like memory retention or accessing the subconscious and unconscious mind, because when I talk to guests who venture into the deeper parts of themselves, they usually say that they don't use any notes for an interview like this. They just trust the flow state. They can get out of their own way. And even off the cuff, they can tap into really eloquent explanations and even a sharper wit than someone who's overthought it all. And many of us have heard things like our unconscious mind has all the answers, similar to a quantum computer, but we don't tap into it correctly. What can be said about this sort of stuff? Well, see, this has always been a large part of my path, actually, having been very, very interested in psychic development work since about 2007. I was interested long before that, but I got formal training starting in 2007. And I think that, you know, using the capacity of your mind is so important. And there are so many tools that people come up with by way of technology to make the mind completely obsolete, computers being one of those. So computers are great for so many things, of course, as we've seen, but look at how far technology is running ahead of the evolution of the human race because we're not developing our mind with our spirit, spirit being discipline, at the same level at which the technology is able to be developed. And so now we're running into the very same problem that inevitably every other culture will, which is artificial intelligence. Which to me is profoundly unethical. If you haven't mastered your own intelligence and know how to use the entirety of your brain and know how it's going to evolve, you know absolutely nothing about how the evolution of artificial intelligence will evolve on its own as well. And so it's much more important to develop a working mastery of the internal mind and being able to tap into all of the different dimensional realities that the mind has the capacity to perceive before just simply willy-nilly going out and creating technologies that are going to make that easier or more accessible for lazy people. For instance, you were talking about, you know, just going right off the cuff with information. That is really tapping into the astral. So for those out there who really need some grounding to help understand what the astral is, the astral is actually best defined by a question. What happens to every thought and emotion when they're done being thought or felt. Well, welcome to the astral. <laughs> so it's a repository of every thought and emotion that exists and of every electromagnetic interaction that exists happening from a planetary level as well. So as the planets are moving, we've all heard of the harmony of the spheres, this Pythagorean concept. And so all of that, all of that information exists in the astral. At the higher ends of the astral, it's the planetary movements and the electromagnetics. And in the lower, it's where our thoughts exist. And Paracelsus used to refer to the thoughts and the emotions kind of existing in the lower realm of the astral that directly affects the physical plane. He would refer to that as the archaeus. And today, most people would refer to that as the etheric. And so if people are not able to utilize their mind and develop the buoyancy of mind in order to visualize things that they want to create or not able to develop the buoyancy of mind 
to envision or sensationalize various things in their lives, then they're not even to the point where they have mastery over the very lowest aspect of the astral. And this is really where the practices of most forms of magic come in, because magic is very not useful if you cannot sensationalize and visualize things very clearly. The second that you are able to do that through repeated discipline, it's just like going to the gym and working a muscle. Through repeated discipline, you begin to be able to sensationalize things and to be able to visualize things very clearly, just as if you were doing it in the physical realm. When you develop that buoyancy of mind, now you have access to that level of the astral. You have access to the higher levels of the astral then too, which would be visualizing, understanding, hearing, sensationalizing, and perceiving the harmony of the spheres, so to speak, or the planetary frequencies that were spoken about so long ago by Pythagoras and his followers and followed down through the Platonic and Aristotelian tradition of the Greeks. And you know, the Chinese also have their own version of that. And so do so many of the ancient great cultures, the Mayans, of course, the Egyptians, and so on and so forth. They just have a slightly different cultural understanding of those planetary frequencies, but they're all corroborating and saying exactly the same thing. And then once you've been able to do that, then you take a look at people who are able to tap into the causal plane and understand cause and effect of actions by looking at the lower causal. If something happens now, what is likely to happen down the line if that pattern of information is not disrupted or interrupted? And then, of course, moving into oneness and unity vision, basically, and being able to see how everything really does source from one and what its points of differentiation are, but what its thread of similarity is. And until somebody can really perceive all of those different things through their mind alone, they are going to be really stuck in the physical dimension. They're going to end up being, for lack of a better term, always a muggle. You won't be able to manifest things very clearly. You'll develop thoughts that are oftentimes wrong. You'll give your power to belief systems instead of thoughts and instead of working things out rationally and so on and so forth because you just simply don't have the discipline or haven't cultivated the discipline to be able to operate in those higher, more subtle dimensions. And so everybody has the capacity to do this. It's just that it takes the volition or the will of the individual in order to be able to do this. And so, yeah, practices like the memory palace, where you hold a visualization as a meditation that you're inside of a palace and you take a memory consciously with all of the feelings, all of the thoughts, all of the emotions, and you make it tangible in your meditation into something that you can go back to and touch. So for me, I like to store mine in little crystal balls and I store thousands and thousands and thousands, you know, probably millions at this point of little crystal balls inside of uh, a large castle with many, many rooms. And depending on which floor, there's only four floors to this castle in my particular form. I store everything in sort of a dimensional file folder. Is this a spiritual experience? Because if so, it goes on the fourth floor. If not, if, is it a causal experience? Then it goes on the third floor. An astral experience on the second floor. A physical experience on the first floor. And I find a room that meets the necessity of the type of memory that it is within the physical and then, or within the astral or whatever else. And then I go in and I create a little crystal ball that holds all of that information. Anytime I want to recall that information, 
I just simply visualized myself going into that room, picking up the crystal and reading it psychically. But it could easily just be a visualization of a book or, you know, anything. But once you start working on those levels of mental buoyancy, what most people perceive as superhuman powers or powers that most humans don't have and you're just singularly gifted, it's actually able to be developed by absolutely anybody. It just takes practice just like anything else. You can't go into the gym and start bench pressing six plates on each side. But <laughs> Even six plates would be very intense for a bench press. But still, my point is you can't just go in there and start stacking up a ton of weight. You have to start slow and you have to start from where you're at in order to actually build the lean muscle that's going to continue to build strength. And the same is true with our psychic faculties or what is sometimes referred to as our mental faculties. Well, that's a good breakdown. And uh, you make me realize just how lazy I have been. But <laughs> and this, is a, this is a hell of a segue. But on the subject of brains or really neural networks, you have a recent blog titled Agricultural Concepts and Tips Written for a Newbie Performing No-Till Agriculture. And some of the advice is things this audience would be familiar with, like don't follow the monocrop method, use composting. But I thought this was interesting. Keep your fungal network intact by disrupting the soil as little as you need to. This is the neural network of the soil. And if you establish a strong fungal network, then the fungi will actually distribute your nutrients for you. This makes it so you can be growing beans in one part of the garden and the nitrogen being fixed in the soil can travel over large distances to the tomatoes grown on the other end of the garden. And <laughs> that's a big wow, man. I have listened to guys like Paul Stamets and Terrence McKenna enough to know that there is a real intelligence and importance to fungi and mushrooms, but maybe you can elaborate on that importance. Sure, yeah. So fungi, they form these really awesome mycelial nets and those nets have thousands and thousands and thousands of branches that go all over underneath the soil and they send not only electromagnetic information so like for instance if there's a tree that is a little bit drought stricken in a certain area of the yard just as long as the fungi is still intact underneath the soil what ends up happening is that the root hormones or the endocrine system basically of the tree ends up corresponding with the neural network of the fungi, which will then go around to all of the rest of the plants that are connected. And then all of the rest of the plants will say, you know what, we all have a little bit of moisture that we can offer. We've got a little bit of excess and then they send it back to the tree. So nutrients and moisture and other things can be sent through this neural network in addition to electromagnetic frequencies that connect everything underneath the soil. And so it's absolutely critical in order to have healthy ecology or agriculture of any sort to focus very heavily on developing and maintaining and creating a heavy structure for that fungi so that it can be created. I like to refer to it as the internet, basically, of the soil, is that it creates and interfaces and allows people to, or the members of the garden, to be able to connect with one another in a way that is relevant and meaningful. And, you know, of course, the internet itself is just an astral invention. The concepts of telepathy are just equally as effective, actually, and even more so because you don't have to 
spend time physically programming in programs and doing all these things. The mind is much more buoyant than any sort of computer. But being able to have that kind of connection is really something that's very enriching. As we're all seeing, you know, everybody here is connecting through the internet right now to these ideas. And so the mycelium is basically just the network of doing that. And there already is a network above ground doing that as well. That would be known as the breath. And this is why everything that breathes in is really important. You know, as we breathe out, the trees and plants breathe in. So we exhale carbon dioxide, they breathe in that carbon dioxide. They breathe out the oxygen, we breathe in the oxygen. And same thing with the animals and everything else. Everything is connected realistically through its breath. Even the oxygen that is sucked out of water through the gills of aquatic life is indelibly intertwined to the air that is above the surface as well that you know falls as a result you know like for instance all of the oxygen that gets into the ocean is really from the waves crashing and capturing tiny amounts of air inside of these pockets of water as they crash and it begins to oxygenate the water and through rivers flowing you know you see water flowing over a rock or down a waterfall and at the end of that there's a tremendous amount of oxygen that is giving life to the rest of the water and so you know, these networks are completely in place. It's just that we need to tap into them and focus on tapping into them. That's why, you know, like my own path of Celtic inspired druidry calls so heavily to me because it's all about focusing on these inherent connections that nature already has provided and learning how to, with our intelligence, interface with those connections so that we can understand, perceive, and work with the rest of nature and not be an alien to it. Yes, well said. And I find these systems to be so interesting, probably because they are so alien and foreign. And you mentioned your intrinsic data field work. And I wanted to bring this up because on the last episode we did, I saw a comment thread where a guy named Tom was asking you more about the intrinsic data field work, and you had a reply that sort of relates to the stuff we're talking about, saying that the German government used it for years in their forestry department before the current administration defunded the program. They were able to analyze and send frequency remedies to the forest to prevent aboral diseases and to learn about high-risk areas in the forest without needing to send physical units on site for inspection. It saved tons of time and money, but the new administration was all about producing more jobs, and so they defunded the program, allowing them to contract Liberty Link pesticides in a government contract, which gives them a ton of money and back-end investment opportunities, very corrupt abuse of government money for the profit of both agricultural corporations and governmental officials' private investments. So, yeah, the, the pesticide stuff, we see those kind of deals getting made all the time and it really sucks. But I guess the important point to me is that this is stuff that has been used before. They can't claim ignorance because we have examples like you mentioned here. The German government used this sort of esoteric technology yeah. to uh, shepherd the land. I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, it is really interesting. Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about Cordizi, Tom. That was a really awesome thing because, you know, so many people think when they hear about this IDF technology that it's, you know, like <laughs> oftentimes people will say like, who are you talking to? Who are you channeling with that instrument? It's like, no, it doesn't work like that, actually. 
you can do the exact same thing through kinesiological interface, but what you're doing is you're tapping into the quantum, which is the spiritual unity field. This quantum field, or what we would refer to as intrinsic data field, or what Rupert Sheldrake would refer to as morphogenetic field or morphic fields, is all really the exact same thing that people have been using for centuries when people communicate using telepathy. They're not using a spiritual messenger to go and deliver the message. They're connecting through the ethers, basically, through the energy network that already exists, and they're just simply tuning in to the same frequency from their crown chakra. So really, the techniques for this are not that difficult to develop. And, you know, the reason that I am choosing to use an intrinsic data field analyzer like the SE5-2000 these days is because I need to be able to show instrumentation and train people in instrumentation so that in the physical, we can actually begin to progress forwards with the way that we analyze and harness data. And it's a great stepping stone and a great tool for that. But you can do this with dousing rods. You can do this with a pendulum. You can do this with, uh, God, what the hell are the name of those machines that you squeeze it and it tells you how many pounds of pressure you have inside of your grip strength. You could do that with tons of different types of things and perform kinesiology. Anybody who wants to learn more about this should start off with the books of Dr. David Hawkins, who created a book called Power Versus Force. And he has a number of different ones, Power Versus Force. He has the eye, the eye of the eye, like so many different books. Dr. Wayne Dyer actually brought this work into the public eye by discussing his foundational work in a lot of his own works. And when he got popularized sometime in the 90s or something, that's how that, that information kind of came out. And that's actually even how I became aware of Dr. David Hawkins' work. But kinesiology is a very reliable tool that many chiropractors and alternative wellness care practitioners or even healthcare practitioners are able to be able to use in order to diagnose diseases and so many other things and find methods of treatment. In fact, you know, the very same technology that we're using right now as a stick pad with most radionics materials, radionics is another term for the instrumentation that's necessary to interact with the intrinsic data field. The stick pad actually goes back to African shamans where they would grab a block and polish it down and sand it really finely to the point where they could rub their fingers on it with virtually no friction. If they asked no questions, you could rub your fingers on it in perpetuity. If you ask a question and the answer is yes, your fingers will stick. And if you ask a question and the answer is no, then your fingers will continue to rub in perpetuity. Because again, zero is an infinity and that means no. One ends the circuit and that means yes, because it's a segment, has a beginning and an end. And so you're basically tapping into the causal plane to be able to find out answers of yes or no. And these African Bushman shamans would take a sick patient, for instance, and stick an herb next to them and rub the block. And if their finger doesn't stick with that herb, then they would trade out another herb and another herb and another herb until it's stuck. And then that herb would be the thing that they would ultimately administer to the sick individual in order to cure the disease. And so our bodies innately are already connecting in on a muscular and beyond muscular level to what is already inherently true. It's our minds and our ego that are usually getting in the way. And with intrinsic data field technology, we're basically using that same thing. The only difference is that we have numerical dials to be able to create some sort of 
amplitude calibration to understand more about the information than just yes or no. And in the future, it's my hope that the technology begins to be advanced so that we can move into more complex types of forming. So just like everything that you see on your computer right now is actually at its source, zeros and ones. So basically you look at the form of the program that you're looking at right now. Behind that, it's short code. Behind that, it's binary. The very same thing is true with our physical reality. The physical reality is like the program that you see and interact with, but behind that is short code, which is the astral or platonic functions. And behind that is really the principle of the celestial salt and niter of the causal plane. And if we can begin to interact like that, then I think a lot of people will begin to see that we can evolve much greater and much more naturally than what was ever conceived before. And for my part, that's really the message that I want to drive home to individuals is you are not limited in your evolution to the technologies that are created. Actually, you are only limited by your own thought and your own discipline. The more discipline and the more buoyancy of thought that you develop, the faster and the more myriad types of evolution you become capable of as an individual. I love it. Just need to learn the astral language and the information is right there. And something I thought would just be great to close us out is this quote of yours that seems pretty useful to mention that if we're thinking big picture about all the stuff that you talk about, you've said the problem with the world is not that we have bad people in charge, but we have too many good people not doing the work. And I agree with that. I think conspiracy minded people can sometimes get caught in a victim mentality. I can't get ahead because the goddamn Rockefellers or just a defeatist attitude. This machine is so big. You know, what the hell am I going to do? And I try to be clear that we can explore all sorts of things. But if we end up having a more accurate understanding of the world through our guests rather than by absorbing what the mainstream culture is fed, we should be better prepared for success, not worse off. And, you know, that'd be the core of the THC aggregate, if you were to ask me. Yes. It's hard enough to put ourselves in a successful position in this system. Now, how do we increase our numbers? How do we broach this with conventional friends and family who are those good people that aren't doing the work? Well, they have to see that you have done the work and see what benefits you're getting as a result. You have to actually stand as an example of what can happen when you focus on yourself. So if you're listening to all these things day in and day out, and you're still living in an apartment or you know not having the land that you talk about or the freedom that you're talking about that other people are holding over your head and blah, 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 then what can they draw away from your hollow words? Nothing except for fear that's not going to help them in any way, shape, or form. You have to not only be able to transcend the fear, but you have to become an example of doing things outside of the scope of the way that things are running. So realistically, the conspiracy network is very, very important to know what you're up against or what you could be up against, because not all of it is probably truth, right? There are some things that it's like there's half truths and whole lies hidden in lots of things. So you have to begin to not only differentiate what is true and what isn't and actually put it to scrutiny, not by just many hours of research online, but by living it and exploring those psychic dimensions that correspond to those things to determine what validity there is, either subjectively or objectively. 
And then you have to choose to do something different about it. And so what is it that you're doing? Are you filling out, you know, notices of liability? Are you taking back your straw man power? Are you starting lawsuits against those businesses? And how are you actually doing that? Are you doing this through crowdfunding? Are you doing, you have to make action. You have to be an example if you expect anybody else to ever listen to you one bit. And if you're not doing and saying the same things, if those two things aren't congruent, then what other people say about you will also be incongruent with what your intention is. And so it's very, very, very important that people get on the same page with themselves and start walking their own talk. And I think for the large portion of the population that comes down to, if you want to have a happier, healthier world, you need to process your own traumas. You have to process your own traumas. You have to get clear from those traumatic experiences that are otherwise dictating your ego and influencing all of your creations and leading you to have belief systems and stories about yourself and what you can do or what you can't do. When you begin to overcome that, other people will inherently, not because you're trying to, not because you're trying to persuade them, they'll inherently look at you and say, you know, whatever he or she did that I'm looking at right now, it's made a huge difference because they're hardly noticeable as the person that I saw before. I want a piece of that myself. And instead of giving unsolicited advice about the conspiracies that you're learning about, you can now give direct experience about what you yourself have overcome and people will be attracted to you and drink from the nectar of what it is that you've already accomplished. And in that way, they might achieve a similar reaction. When enough of us do this, that's how we earn our own freedom. The more power that you give to any idea or thought or belief system that you yourself are not embodying, it is only hollow and it only exacerbates and aggrandizes the ego. And that's not going to help anybody get anywhere at all. Hmm. Man, cheers to that. This has been just a lot of fun and really information rich, just like last time. Before I let you go, definitely tell the people what they'll find at phoenixaurelius.org or any upcoming events or work that they should be tapping into. Awesome. Thank you, man. Yeah. So anybody who's interested in supporting my work and supporting my research and the Research Academy, I always invite you to go to phoenixaurelius.org and you can actually take 30% off of anything in the apothecary by entering in higher side, all one word, into the coupon code section of the website and the shopping cart. And that will take 30% off of anything that's in our Spagyric Apothecary, because that's kind of the bread and butter of how I'm able to make products that reciprocally give you something back and continue to fund my work because you don't get paid for hours of reading. <laughs> you know, Spending 15 years reading and performing lab work, nobody pays you for that. It's actually very draining on the pocketbook. So that's the number one way that people can support us. I also have teachable courses and I teach live courses. So coming up on October 17th, I have a class uh, teaching people expert fermentation skills for the home and lab. So I try and direct these breakout groups, session study courses so that people who aren't interested in alchemy are also interested in the breakout sessions so that everybody can learn a little piece of alchemical work, even if they're not going to be a lab alchemist. And so we'll be 
fermenting all sorts of different types of things. I'll be teaching people how to make wine and mead and beers and ancient ales. All of you who are interested in my Pictish Scottish heather ale recipe, I'll be teaching that. And we'll also be discussing a lot of other things, how to ferment just about anything that you can think of, whether it's water or pickles or fermented veggies or wine or foods or making ferments even for the garden. So I'll be teaching you tons and tons and tons of different skills. Then that's October 17th. We still have plenty of room on that one. And then November 14th, I have one on the waterworks. And so these are courses where you can actually come for an entire day. They usually run from about 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. our local time. And you can come in and work in the lab and study. And then we also usually have Dr. Jin Yan who is our TCM practitioner here in the days either before or after, sometimes both. So if you're interested in getting gua sha or acupuncture or other things like that, you can do that around those times as well so that, you know, you have a reason to come in for the whole weekend, basically, instead of just coming in just for the class. So I've got those and I offer private apprenticeships and all sorts of things. You're just going to find a wide range of everything that I offer when you go to phoenixaurelius.org. But the main things really are the apothecary and the education, which is what I try and focus on because those two things help people the most. And that's my intention is try and help people to help themselves. Beautiful. Amen. I'm aligned with that. And yes, your website is uh, very robust and full of stuff for people to dig into um, and I'm also trying to get my coupon codes out there when I go on other shows. Very smart. Got to feed the egregores and stuff. But I guess I would ask you, because it's something that's come up for me, is the higher side coupon code case sensitive at all? Is it all caps? Nope. It's completely, you can put it in all caps or you can put it in low caps. There's no case sensitivity to it whatsoever. Cool, cool. I got to figure out how to do that. It's become a problem for me. But all right, man. Well, Awesome. Always a pleasure. I'm all jazzed up and motivated, and I hope it lasts. But <laughs> keep fighting the good fight, man, until we meet again. Excellent. Thank you. Wow. What can I say, guys? Just wow. Mm. I think Phoenix is a great guest. Again, I'm impressed with not only the range of his knowledge, but also his orating skills. Very clear and very detailed responses. But I'm still left cutting out so many questions due to time, but even just going with the flow. I didn't expect this interview to be so sexual, but those ideas around why other beings might try to tap into our power of creation or other ways that power could be used, that stuff is provocative. Especially if you think the cabal of pedo cannibals is using sex magic in any way. It's like, well, if you think that that has any sort of potency, then we should probably try to understand what's under the hood there. What is the power of our various forms of energy? Don't we sort of need our people using all the tools we got on the positive side? Seems like sex magic has a lot of applications. Maybe try to envision a better world when you bang. I don't know. So, yeah, I made it weird. But we rolled with it and got to some pretty interesting places, not just sexual, but creation abilities in general. I think it's more in the second hour, but even something like creating a business or a brand has a spiritual, egregorial component. And it's another thing to consider if you're launching something of your own, which seems like the best and really only path forward 
And even though it's not talked about a whole, whole lot, the best feedback I ever get is from people who were listeners throughout the whole GameStop phase of my life and got to watch me kind of quit in real time and be right there and see where the show was then versus where it is now. I mean, that example of my experience from what I read in my inbox has been really impactful on people to actually take the leap and dedicate themselves to whatever it is they want to do. And over the years, I think a lot of THC listeners have grown their own projects right along with me, and kudos to those people, and best of luck to anyone who's just getting started with that kind of thing. But I got some exciting news here, and I didn't want to get too far down into a wrap-up without mentioning it, but our good pal Gordon and I are doing a joint Zoom hangout for our paid members with Sally Fallon Morell for the launch of her book, The Contagion Myth. So if you are a member of either THC Plus or RuneSoup Premium before October 6th, I guess, because that is when we're doing it, October 6th at 6 p.m. Pacific, you can join in live. And we're going to save some time at the end for member questions. Pretty awesome. Not something I'm used to doing, but Gordon suggested it. And of course, I wanted to make that happen. This was a creative way for us both to be involved and not just be asking Sally back on so soon for another regular THC episode. So let it be known, we're doing that. We really appreciate the people who support us and always want to try to increase the value you get for that support and give you more for being reciprocal. It's how we build the new world, people. And it's a fitting show to hear this announcement on because Phoenix has mentioned Sally and the Weston A. Price Foundation a few times on his site. I was going to bring it up with him today, but I think that was one of the things that got cut, right? I remember asking about memory retention and brain training, and now you know why. Also wise of him to start putting out coupon codes in these interviews. I started doing the same if you've heard me on any other shows recently. It lets you know where the impact is. If you're a popular guy and you have 20 podcast hosts asking for interviews and only two seem to have audiences that have responded well in the past, well, at least you know how to prioritize your time. Eventually, the requests do become too much, and I can only assume with a guy like Phoenix, that will be his reality if it isn't already. But I say this kind of thing a lot when it comes to supporting our guests. And today I would say definitely try and pick something up from Phoenix's apothecary with that higher side coupon code. Even if it's just to test the theory of spagyrics and say you gave it a shot, it's a rare enough discipline that just to say you had something that was broken down and refined in that way is pretty unique. I'm definitely going to try some things out, see if I can't cure the old allergies. You can probably hear it in my voice, but all this smoke in the air out here is actually getting to me. <laughs> it's been rough the last few days after like a month of forgetting I ever had a problem. So ebbs and flows, strikes and gutters. But Phoenix makes a lot of good points. We have to be the example. We have to look like we're keeping our wits about us in a time when many are not. We should be able to show that our knowledge and curiosity about the world and the thoughtfulness we put into our actions and the work we've done on ourselves it should all 
contribute to our success. Rather than contributing to our tailspin to rock bottom, as is the way they try to always make us look, and I wish everyone as much success as possible, as long as they stay authentic and independent. You really can't keep your authenticity when you sign some of the deals that I have seen proposed. Anyway, loved today's show. Big thanks to Phoenix and big thanks to you for listening. I hope long-term listeners feel as if THC has contributed to their preparedness for these wild times or their overall knowledge that they draw from. You're all the best. Sign up for Plus if you like what I do, thehiresidechats.com. Hundreds of extra hours to hundreds of interviews. In today's second hour, we talked about business entities and egregores, like I kind of mentioned before, and homunculi, but also land spirits and bioregional animism and working with those land spirits and forming relationships with entities outside of ourself and a few other awesome things you'd probably love to hear about if you liked the first hour. But either way, I will see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, egregores, hermunculi, and fungal networks of the new reality. Your fucking Sweet dreams to the elite. We're calling them out on THC. Uncovering secrets and conspiracies. Everybody's looking for something. Some of them want to use you. Some of them want to get used by you Some of them want to abuse you Some of them want to be abused Abuse you Some of them want to be a